to really begin to grasp what is going on in Romans 3, 25, and 26. And these three phrases and terms in 3 and 25 and 26 are these. A sacrifice of atonement, a demonstration of God's righteousness or his righteousness, and justification or justified. All three of those you could spend sermon after sermon after sermon on because they are so weighty and contain so much. But, but this morning, I pray that after this sermon that God will not only grant you a deeper understanding of all of these things, but solidify more deeply in your hearts that you are saved by solus Christus, or you are saved solus Christus in Christ alone. And that by understanding this truth, you are, you are given the, the beauty and the comfort that solus Christus really brings. Listen again to what Paul says in Romans 3, 25 to 26. This is on page 9 in the top of your service folders if you want to follow along. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's a lot, right? Pretty weighty. Understanding what's going on here really starts with what we read in our in our first reading for this morning, because the first big thing that Paul brings up is the sacrifice of atonement. The Old Testament God, on the great day of atonement, told Aaron, the high priest, and every other high priest that came after him, that he was to take two goats. One of those goats would be a scapegoat. The sins of the people would be confessed on it and would be led out into the wilderness, signifying a removal of their sins. The other goat, it was to be taken as a sacrifice on this great day of atonement. Aaron was to sacrifice this and collect the blood, and he was to enter into the most holy place, the place where God's presence dwelled among his people in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Aaron was to take the blood from this sacrifice, and he was to sprinkle it on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, also called the Atonement Covenant. And then he was to sprinkle that blood in front of the Ark of the Covenant as well. And then he was to go into the Tent of Meeting, which was the place in the midst of God's people, and he was to do the same thing with the blood. This is what was to happen to atone for the sins of the Israelites. This was a reminder to the Israelites that their sin had a price that needed to be paid. And the only way for them to atone for those sins, or for that sin to be atoned for before God, was through the shedding of blood. When God set up this great day of atonement, it was not to be just a thing that was celebrated once. It was to be a lasting ordinance, celebrated year after year after year. And every year, this is how Israel was to atone for their sins. Now, when I read through Leviticus, I'll be the first to admit that it's not my favorite book to go to for my personal devotional life, because there is, aside from the Great Day of Atonement, so much happening. Because in there, not only do you have the Great Day of Atonement, but you have the entirety of the sacrificial system laid out. And you have guilt offerings, and thank offerings, and sin offerings, and fellowship offerings, and you've got the regulations and the class of the Levites who are God's priests, and then you have all of these regulations in Leviticus about what is clean and what is unclean. In other words, the food that the Israelites could eat and could not eat. It's not my favorite place to go for devotional life, even if there is this beautiful thing in the middle of it called the Great Day of Atonement. But the, the important thing for us to remember when we get to some of these deep things, especially in the Old Testament, is that there is a reason for everything that God had written down. And so much of the Old Testament was foreshadowed. It was a picture that pointed the Israelites forward to what the coming Messiah was going to do. 
This is especially true of the sacrificial system and of the Great Day of Atonement. Because every time that the Great Day of Atonement was celebrated, every time that that goat was sacrificed and its blood sprinkled on the atonement cover before the altar, it was a visceral reminder for the Israelites that sin could not go unpunished. Sin had a price that needed to be paid, and that price was the spilling of blood. But when they celebrated the Great Day of Atonement, they weren't just given this visceral reminder of their sin, they were also given a very real reminder of the promise. The promise that was given to their very first ancestors, Adam and Eve, in the garden, when they fell into sin. God told Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This was the very first promise of a Savior. And every single time that the Great Day of Atonement was celebrated, it pointed them forward. It was a foreshadowing to what the Messiah of God, Jesus Christ, was going to do for them. To be the once-for-all sacrifice to win atonements, to make them at one with God. What a beautiful thing that is, right? The fact that God set up this whole system, and he set up the Great Day of Atonement to be this reminder of the greatest promise that he ever gave. But the problem is, like with so much of the good things that God ordains for us in this world, there's a tendency for them to be perverted by Satan and to be corrupted by sin. And this is what happened with the Great Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system. You see, the Jews, from the time that the Great Day of Atonement was established, to the time that Jesus took on flesh and blood and entered into our world to be our Savior, they carried out 1,450 great days of atonement. Once a year, for 1,450 years, they sacrificed this goat as a sin offering. Between the time that Jesus was born and the time he hung on the cross to be that sacrifice of atonement for our sins, they carried out another 30 great days of atonement. Can you understand maybe a little bit then why People of Jesus they have been given the impression that it was their sacrifice that made them at one with God, and not the content of that sacrifice. That it was their work that won for them atonements that paid for their sins, and not the content, the blood that was spilled in these sacrifices that actually atoned for them. The people during Jesus' day, they saw, or at the very least, had heard about the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, this once-for-all sacrifice. But because of this sinful intuition that said, there must be something more I need to do. There must be some other sacrifice I have to make. They looked at Jesus' sacrifice and said, truly this isn't enough. They wanted their sacrifice to count for something. In 1517, there was a monk named Martin Luther who posted 95 statements for debates on the castle church doors of Whitman. And he did this because by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit working through his word, Luther discovered the truth. And when, when it comes to being at one with God, in Romans, and this section of Romans was one of Luther's favorites, when it comes to being at one with God, your sacrifices, our sacrifices mean absolutely nothing. The only sacrifice that counts, that makes you at one with God, is the sacrifice that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 3, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Luther was so worked up about this that he posted 95 statements for debate because the church during that day was teaching that there were sacrifices that you actually need to make. I'm sure it's not the spilling of, of blood of a goat like it was on the Great Day of Atonement, but there are sacrifices that you can do and that are accessible to you that bring you closer to God. They were teaching that 
you can, you can sacrifice money into the coffers of the leader of the church to get a slip of paper that said your sins were forgiven. Implicit in that is Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. They were teaching that if you sacrifice your time and energy devoted to good works, you can make up for all of the sins that you have committed this past week and therefore cut off time from your sentence in purgatory, this holding tank that they said would, you would be in before you got to heaven. They were teaching that if you sacrifice the blessings that God has given you in this life and deny yourself of any earthly pleasures, living a more ascetic lifestyle which monks would live, you would be closer to God and therefore you would be less likely to sin. But Luther fought for this truth of Christ alone, that our sacrifices mean absolutely nothing, and it is only Christ's sacrifice that can bring us atonement, that can make us at one with the one true God. Now, you've probably noticed over the last couple weeks that I've really hit home on a, a basically one thing. And when it comes to things like faith, when it comes to things like righteousness, and having a right standing before God, when it comes to things like atonement, that the arrow never points up. It can't. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the arrow pointing down love found in the Son of God who was sacrificed for your atonement. And yet that doesn't stop us from having a desire to do the same things that the Jews thought was the right way and to do the same thing that the Church of the Middle Ages was teaching, to think that we need to do something else over and above the sacrifice that Jesus offered us. I'm sure the sacrifices might look different than putting money in coffers and devoting your life to good works. It might look different than sacrificing a goat for an altar on the great day of atonement, but there are sacrifices that we try to offer nonetheless. We offer up sacrifices on the altar of altruism. You know what altruism is? You've heard of it, maybe? So altruism is this idea of selfless love and care for somebody else, even if it costs you something. We offer up sacrifices on this altar of altruism. Now, I would be the first to admit that there is nothing inherently wrong with altruism. In fact, I am convinced that all this altruistic lifestyle, this altruistic idea, has its roots in Christianity. Living selflessly and sacrificing yourself in love for others, that is the most Christian idea that exists in this world. But the moment that you think that living an altruistic life, living a life that is devoted to serving others, and you think that that life is what makes you at one with God, that that brings you closer to God, well then implicit in your thought is that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. We offer up sacrifices on the proverbial altar of the church. And I'm not talking about the altar that sits behind me, on which the body and blood of Jesus sit. I'm talking about the whole idea behind why we come to church in the Bible study and volunteer at church in the first place. Instead of coming to church for the right reason, which is to worship the one true God alone and to serve Jesus out of a willing and thankful heart, sometimes we come to church thinking that it's going to make up for all of the bad things that we did this past week. And offering up all of these volunteer hours to in service to gospel ministry here at Huntersville Lutheran is a sacrifice that brings us closer to God. And implicit in that thought, no matter how small it is, it's the thought that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. We offer up sacrifices on the altar of family. We all have, or many of us have spouses. Some have kids. We have brothers and sisters, both related by blood and related by faith. And God has 
designated this specific way in which we are to love them. We are to love them more than we love ourselves. But the minute that we think that loving them in this way is a good work, a work that brings us closer to God, we're saying that Jesus' sacrifice for atonement wasn't enough. We are as susceptible to this arrow pointing up idea of thinking that our sacrifices can mean something to God, even, even though God says, I don't desire sacrifices. But we are as susceptible to it today as the church 500 years ago, as the Jews 2,000 years ago, Jesus did. And look, apart from the Word of God, the sole source of authority for all things eternal, spiritual, and divine, this is about the best idea that we could come up with. Apart from the faith that God has worked in our hearts through the power of his word, the only person that you could trust to make you at one with God would be yourself. Apart from the grace of God, that arrow pointing down love of God, the, the only way that you could think to get right with God is to try to earn his love by doing something, to think that the love of God is arrow pointing up, and therefore the best way to earn it is by offering up these sacrifices. The reason that you see this so often in your own hearts and in the world, this idea of arrow pointing up, is because it is the thing that comes most naturally to us. But you know that that's not the way it works, because God has revealed that to you. In his grace alone, God has worked faith in your heart that trusts in what God reveals in Scripture alone. That God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. God reveals that Jesus is the sacrifice that makes you at one with God. God reveals that the blood that his son spilled for you is far greater than any other sacrifice that could be made. It is a blood that actually buys you back from your sinful way of life. It is a blood that redeems you. It is a blood that tells you your sins are forgiven. It is a blood that makes you stand right before God. This is the only sacrifice that actually matters. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul not only tells you what he did, what God did for you in Christ alone, but he also tells you why God did it for you in Christ alone. Paul says, God did this, sacrificed his son as, a, as an offering of atonement to demonstrate his righteousness. Two weeks ago, we looked at a, a verse from Romans chapter 3, 22, that said this righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And the way we talked about righteousness during that sermon was that this righteousness given to you by faith means that you have a right standing before God, that your relationship with God is made right. This is the righteousness of God as it is applied to the life and the hearts of believers. But when Paul talks about God demonstrating his righteousness, he's not applying righteousness to us. Is applying righteousness to God himself. And when you apply righteousness to God himself, it requires a little bit different of a definition. You see, the, when it talks about the righteousness of God, or God demonstrating his righteousness, it, it's talking about God always being right, that he is perfectly holy, that he, is, that he has no sin, that every thought and action and word that he takes, and that he speaks, is all right all the time. And the way that God demonstrates his perfection and his rightness is in his son, Jesus Christ. And he demonstrates it in Christ because Jesus is the only one who was perfect enough. He was the only one who could work hard enough. He was the only one whose sacrifice could actually mean anything for you for your eternal life. He did this as a demonstration of his righteousness for your benefit. For your benefit. 
He did this to show you, to prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt, your sins are forgiven, you are at one with God, the righteousness of God is yours. He did this to prove those things to you. Now in school, and some of you actually might know this, but in school I was never much for math. In fact, I still suck at math to this day. It was consistently one of the worst subjects I have, always the worst grade. Still to this day, you give me two numbers, like what is 10 plus 12, I'd be the guy who gives you an answer like 34 instead of the correct answer, which is 22. And the only reason I know that answer is because I did it on a calculator before writing this sermon. Um, I always hated math, but I do remember that there was this, that there was this uh, simple elegance to seeing a math proof come together. Remember what math proofs are? A textbook says, yeah, people who are engineers are not in your heads. Um, math proofs, uh, a textbook would tell you that uh, uh, prove that the square root of three is irrational. Right? If you did your work right, you would come up with this whole list of mathematical principles to show that there is not some nice neat little number that is the square root of three. And no matter what somebody could say to you, no matter what argument they would make, if they looked at your list of proofs, they could not prove you wrong. There is a simple elegance a complicated proof. God used Jesus as simple elegance to a very complicated problem. The problem of sin. God sacrificed his son as the sacrifice of atonement. He did it to prove to you that he is righteous. He did it to prove to you that you are forgiven. No matter what anybody says, no matter what arguments they might make, everything comes back to proof. Proof of God's one and only Son being your sacrifice for atonement. The very thing that makes you that one with God. God uses Jesus as simple elements to this complicated problem. God demonstrates his righteousness in Jesus Christ. And it is only in Christ alone that you have atonement. And it is only in Christ alone that you are justified. We finally get to the third of these three weighty terms. Justification is a term that is borrowed from a court of law. When a, a defendant walks out of a court declared justified by a judge, it means that they're innocent. Totally and completely innocent. Justification, or to be justified, is a not guilty sentence handed down by somebody else. When Paul is using this term, he is painting a picture for every sin-burdened and weird soul that exists. He is saying to all of you, that you, Christ was sacrificed as atonement. For you, Christ died and shed his blood. For you, God demonstrated his righteousness in Jesus Christ. To prove to you that all of those sins which haunt you, those mistakes that keep you up at night, those transgressions that weigh you down with guilt, they are not counted against you. For those, you are declared not guilty. For those, you are innocent. And that declaration comes to you in Christ alone. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be the one who is just, and the one who justifies. Those who have faith in Jesus. That's how Paul puts it. But maybe you can put it in more personal terms. God demonstrated his righteousness 
for you. God demonstrated his righteousness in his son and sacrificed him as an atonement offering for you. God declares you not guilty of your sin because of Christ. You have life because of Christ alone. Look, I pray that in those moments in this life when sin has gotten the better of you, you feel that your relationship with God is in jeopardy. I pray that you don't revert back to the thinking that has so long existed and comes most naturally to man that we have to do something to make up for that sin. Instead, I pray that you cling more and more tightly and more deeply to this truth, solus Christus, in Christ alone, because it is in Christ alone that you have atonement. It is in Christ alone that you have forgiveness. It is in Christ alone that you are declared not guilty. It is in Christ alone and because of the work that God carried out through his Son, that your sins are forgiven and that heaven is yours. I pray that you cling more and more tightly to that truth, because so is Christus in Christ alone. It's the heart of everything. God grant it. Amen.